So I came prepared for today's episode. <gasps> you did some research? That, but I also brought my beverages. I've got <laughs> some Coca-Cola. Oh, that's some corn. All right. I also have some mellow corn. Oh, that's, that is corn. <laughs> <laughs> Straight corn whiskey. It is. It is. That's actually all I got beverage-wise. I've got water besides that. No corn great. in that, I don't think. Not yet. I'm sure we'll find a way to put some in it. Listeners who don't know, mellow corn is really good. In my opinion, it makes a better Jack and Coke than Jack Daniels. Blasphemous, but I'll allow it. Thank you. (laughs) It also has a really cute slash ugly label. Yeah, it's like retro looking. Yes. I dig it. I love it. Okay, so yeah, we're talking about corn today. Corn. Everyone's favorite topic. Everyone's... (laughs) (laughs) You know, you usually ask, what's your favorite subject in school? Science, math. If they're a kiss up, they'll tell you history. This, from my perspective, is a history teacher. But (laughs) that's true. Rarely do they say corn. Well, I mean, it could be its own subject. There's a lot to it. So let me give some background on, on how this episode came to be and why we're doing it. Stuff like that. My husband started reading a book called The Omnivorous Dilemma by Michael Pollan. Uh, we're, we were already pretty big Michael Pollan fans. We loved Cooked. Um, we, I think both of us listened to the audiobook of that and like watched the show. He's a very famous like food thought leader, <laughs> if that makes sense. And so yeah, Kyle started reading this and he was like, babe, you've got to read this. you got to read this. And finally, he, he figured out how to get to me, which was maybe you could do an episode of the podcast on it. <laughs> and I was like, damn it. Okay. That was very subversive of him. It was super good strat because it worked. Um, <laughs> first off, it's it's one of my favorite books I've read in a while. It's really good. And it did prove to be pretty good fodder for the podcast. So what we're going to do, it's, it's not going to be a straight book report. I took the bulk of the research from the book, but we're going to split it um, into two parts. The overall thesis of the book is exploring our food system. You know, the title comes from the idea that humans can eat, you know, both plants and meat, you know, being an omnivore. But the omnivore's dilemma is an idea that you have to spend a lot of time and energy figuring out what to eat. And I think all adults can kind of relate to that. Like, what the fuck do I do for dinner? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, shit. (laughs) Even once the decision has been made of where, like, if if you're going out, Mm -hmm. where... I'm still so bad at decisions. I usually have to look at the menu beforehand (laughs) <laughs> so I don't hold everyone up because I have a trouble deciding like what to eat once I'm there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you are a very slow menu picker. Yeah. So that's just a, a brief teaser for kind of like that part of the food system. But really, the first half of the book is about corn. And you may be wondering at this point, why? We're going to tell you. Because <laughs> corn is like real important to the food system in the United States and increasingly so the world. But yeah, if, if you have read this book or if you've heard of this book, you're probably like, yeah, this is not a leftist book. Yeah, it's it won't give it to you. You know, Pollen will walk right up to the edge of the problem. He will use the terms like this is capitalism, you know, and like critique it rightly, but offers very few solutions, you know, besides personal choice, you know, and the book is very much framed as his personal journey to connect with food, which I think is very effective in terms of like writing. And it's it's poetic at points uh but you know it's it's a pretty liberal approach of of oh let's just 
let's just buy nicer meat guys <laughs> you know? yeah that will that will sell your book to people who want to feel want to do something that makes them feel better they're trying to purge their sins and you know feel like they're making moral choices which again we're for i mean make moral choices but <laughs> that's not enough <laughs> yeah yeah i was talking to my husband about this like wondering like how much of this do you think was marketing like it's like you can't just go out there and be like yeah we should just not do capitalism you know <laughs> and um but i don't know he does at one point specifically call out the soviet union's food program too and so it's like i don't know I mean, not to say the Soviet Union was out, is without its sins, so. <laughs> well, sure, yeah. So we also have one additional source for this, and that's one that you actually engaged with, which is the documentary King Corn. Do you want to tell the listeners about that a little? Sure, yeah. Uh, King Corn followed the journey of the, the two documentary makers. I forgot their names. I'm always like, I prefer a detached documentary, so I kind of tune out to the personal stories a little oh, bit. Oh, yeah, me too. They're boring, but, too. Um, <laughs> But there were these two guys and they like wanted to find out more about corn. So they planted an acre of corn out in Iowa and just kind of learn about the corn industry. And this was back in 2007, I want to say. Yeah, it was pretty early. So it was, I think, kind of news to everybody, you know. <laughs> yeah, it looks a little dated in that sense, you know, but it was cool. It, it talked a lot about the different origins of like our food industry and Stuff I feel like it was a good primer. You're probably going to get more in depth on it, like with the research and stuff from the actual book. But this was a good like, hey, I didn't read the book, but I watched the movie <laughs> uh, substitute. <laughs> I agree. Yeah, I think it's a really good like introduction to a lot of these ideas. I, I think for me, because I am a very visual person, it was really impactful to see like how much physical corn there was piled the up mountains. there yeah <laughs> yeah that was pretty wild and also um you know michael pollan is in the documentary so i was like oh okay cool <laughs> yeah seal of <laughs> approval first off we're gonna do some corn science corn is a weird plant <laughs> that's, that's the first thing you need to know it's a little little genetic freak <laughs> yeah i think i saw this in in the king corn documentary that corn now is it was like selected for you know they they changed it from its original like kind of more balanced food that was um more like you know proteins or whatever else it had this all oh, kind of mix of stuff um was more you know i guess healthy or, or balanced or what you want to call it versus modern day corn i don't know i thought that was interesting because you know people like to say oh these immigrants with their, you know, bad, unhealthy native food that's <laughs> poor and, and just, you know, fatty or whatnot. It's like, no, dude, like theirs was actually a good, a good crop. Yeah. I mean, we've bred the fuck out of it. Like corn is a very genetically uh, susceptible plant, if you want to think about it. Uh, Pollen kind of writes it like, you know, who domesticated who? Because like corn has been domesticated and like is everywhere now so it's like it's done a really good job of creating a relationship with humans mm, you know yeah. so it's kind of interesting to see that like i would say symbiotic but like we're also being harmed by it <laughs> kind of relationship yeah like so we originally molded it to our purposes but now we're sort of like bent over to its like design we're doing everything we can to eat all this corn so yeah it's doing really well for itself <laughs> 
But even back before we let kind of industrialized corn and, and made it completely uniform and things like that, um, its original kind of mutation that caused it to be so strange happened way back in the day. It, it originates from a grass in central Mexico. What happened is uh, there was kind of a freak mutation in its uh, genes where the stalk, like the the tassel, which is the male organ part of the plant, ended up being really far away from the female part of the plant, you know, like a few feet down, which is the kernels. Mm, okay. Normally in a you know, typical plant, those things are pretty close. Like if you think of a normal flower diagram you study in school, like the, you know, stamen and the pollen is very close to like the rest of the plant. Um, So it can easily be fertilized. Corn is a little weirdo. (laughs) (laughs) And basically what has to happen is somebody, essentially some human has to make the pollen go down to the husk where there are like little silks sticking out of it. If you've seen like, fresh corn, and each of those silks is attached to a kernel, which is the seed. But because it's so far away, they need help to do that. Plus, if you ever actually just, like, stick that corn cob in the ground with with all the husk and everything, like, it'll just die. Like, it'll suffocate itself to death because it can't break out of the husk. Um, It's very rare to actually grow it in the husk. You have to shuck it. And, like, that's not a thing most animals can do. Like, that's really a human-ass thing to do. So corn figured out, like, I'm going to hang with this guy because <laughs> <laughs> they can do this for me. And, you know, the indigenous people um, in Mexico and throughout the Americas, as it spread, like, they did it. And they started selecting for corn that they liked. Corn is also weird in another way. Um, and that's in its kind of natural efficiency. Plants, whenever they do photosynthesis, they have to collect carbon, right? And they have to open what's called a stoma. And this book, like, really graphically describes that. He says something like, imagine if you lost a little blood every time you opened your mouth to eat. No, thanks. <laughs> and that's <laughs> that's how stomas are, because they lose water when they open that, but they have to so they can get carbon. Okay. Gross. Yeah, it is. That's literally what I wrote in my notes. It's <laughs> gross. <laughs> but corn is more efficient whenever it does that because it's less picky about the different types of carbon it collects, like isotope-wise. It's like, I don't care. Like, just give me it. And basically, it gets an extra carbon molecule in the process. And this is why it's often referred to as a C4 plant because of, like, the kind of carbon it takes in. So one, this makes it a much more efficient plant. It can survive on less water than other plants. It can survive in all kinds of climates, all kinds of soil. Like it's just like really good at growing. And important for our purposes, scientists can use the C4 molecule to track down how much corn-based carbon is in your body. Mm, okay. So in the documentary when they're like tracking, like the doing the hair test, that's what they were doing? Exactly, yeah. So, because you may be like, guys, I don't eat that much corn. (laughs) You know, like, that's a very normal reaction to have if someone tells you how much, you know, corn is really in our food system. You'd be like, "Uh, I mean, I can't even remember the last time I had, like, fresh corn. corn. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure. (laughs) Fresh corn, canned corn, cream corn, whatever. It's like, "Mm, that's not commonly what I am going to. Yeah. But this is all processed corn. So... You know, in America, people eat about 115 pounds of wheat flour a year compared to 11 pounds of corn flour. But whenever we test for these isotopes, um, North Americans have 
a ton of corn in their bodies. The, the scientists they talked to, uh, a Berkeley biologist said, we North Americans look like corn chips with legs. <laughs> <laughs> We're just little cornful people. That's kind of cute. <laughs> Going to go into some, some history of corn's rise. So, again, indigenous people were really into this stuff. Super efficient, really, you know, high in protein and fats and all the good stuff. Now, normally what happens when Europeans come over and interact with a native flora or fauna, they're like, "Mm, I brought my own shit. I like it better. (laughs) We're going to replace it. This happens even with wheat, you know, they, they try to... And they, they definitely do plant wheat. I'm not saying they didn't. Uh, but I'm thinking particularly in Mexico, they were like trying to bring over wheat for the purpose of communion wafers and like to make that more morally and culturally important as opposed to like some of their other grains like amaranth because that was like very sacred to indigenous people there. But in the case of corn, it was so efficient that it won people over. You could eat it fresh, you could grind it into flour, you could dry it, you could do animal feed, uh, fuel, uh, alcohol, uh, weaving with the silks, uh, toilet paper even. Like, that. corn cobs were toilet paper, which is horrifying. (laughs) (laughs) That's why you don't go back in time in your time machine. Oh, God, no. Never go back. (laughs) (laughs) But what's interesting about this is that it becomes more than a food. It becomes a commodity. You could now just rely on corn completely for a crop. You can say, I know this will always sell at the market. And in fact, you could start kind of almost treating it like a currency. Um, You could trade it for things, including slaves at the time. We're talking that kind of time period. And, and Pollen calls this a proto-capitalist plant, which I think is really interesting. It's the first time we, we, we took a food out of just eating purposes, you know? Yeah, I wonder if that's more a product of its, its historical moment. Because, like, I mean, if you're talking about, quote-unquote, exploring the new world or whatever, these first interactions, you're talking about the first time that capital gets to go and... and primitively accumulate slash just you know plunder a a continent that's part of it is they they just now suddenly have these mass you know amounts of things including corn including whatever else they're producing that now you can start trading futures and 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 basically stocks essentially with these things yeah because it was so like portable and also uh didn't go bad easily like it just became this really easy method and then like when the rail system took off it was right there ready to go easily poured into uh train cars things like that so like it was just kind of ready made for this capitalist system yeah so we're going to jump forward a little bit to the early 1880s kind of frontier times because corn continued to be so popular you, you had people just growing and growing and growing the price collapsed. <laughs> so uh, they decided to turn the excess corn into whiskey, uh, which was even more valuable. It was portable, shelf stable, you know, could be used as an anesthetic. Um, so the things to do with your excess corn at that time was either turn it into pork or turn it into whiskey. And oh boy, did we turn it into a lot of whiskey? Because <laughs> according to this book, a typical American drank do you want to guess how much whiskey a day in the early 19th century? Oh, those guys were... 
I'm going to say typical American, you got to count for men and women and children. I'm going to say half a liter. Um, I don't know my system well enough to, that's more, I think. What did they say? A pint. One pint. Okay. That's a, still a lot. Oh, one pint. Two liter. One pint is 0.56 liters. Hey, you were like really close to being right. <laughs> You're basically right. You win. Yeah. Yeah, a pint. We were just turned twenty four seven. Yeah, I mean those. You know the temperance movement guys had a point back when they were talking about that. Like everybody, not everybody, but lots of people drank way, 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 way too much. Yeah, yeah. The the book talks about that as well. Is like this is really the start of of that movement because there was obviously a big uptick in like crime and domestic violence mm-hmm. and just public urination and all kinds of shit you know like that's what happens when you get a bunch of rowdy boys drunk yeah yeah and i mean people lost a lot of money or gambled their money away or like you said you know all these social ills like yeah it was it was a problem definitely but i include this because it's it's one of kind of the tenets of this book which is that when you have what's referred to as excess biomass like if you think of a typical food chain kind of scenario when you have extra you know food as something in abundance it's going to get used up somehow and in this case we we turned it into alcohol and even i guess it's that same time period it's a little bit before then even corn whiskey or any of your grains really turning them into whiskey was a good way to you know store them and stuff for longer periods but also like you could trade in that like Mm-hmm. A lot of times out in the frontier, they would use that as money. That was one of the big things in early American history that we have to you know, teach about, even though it's like looking back kind of like small scale, kind of boring, but it was the whiskey <laughs> rebellion. Oh, yeah. That was about like taxing those frontier farmers, taxing their corn whiskey most of the time and, and, and making them pay in, in actual gold and stuff. And they're like, well, fuck, we don't have, <laughs> we don't have any gold. Like, <laughs> we don't farmers. have that. So. Yeah, no, it was a huge part of of the economy and clearly just like everyday life. Mm -hmm. So let's take a quick detour into fertilizers. We're going to talk about shit. (laughs) Nice. We usually do. We do. (laughs) Well, this is actually a more uh, sophisticated version of fertilizer, which was figured out in 1840 by Baron Justus von Leiberg. And he figured out how to break fertility down into crucial elements. So nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium, uh, shortened as NPK. Um, If you think about this time period, it kind of makes sense. Like this is when we're breaking things down into what became kind of the field of nutrition and chemistry and all that stuff. We were all about like, how does this work? So we can, one, understand it, but two, also like sell it. (laughs) Okay. All right. (laughs) And here's the thing. This NPK stuff does work. Plants will grow. You know, he, he was studying soil and he figured out these are the base components, right? But this is a really reductionist way to approach this process. It basically turns nature into like a simple machine instead of like what it is, which is a very holistic organism. You know, if you think back in school about like the food web and like the nitrogen cycle, the water cycle, like there's a lot you know? Um, so it's really reductive just to say like, all right, let's just take these three things and put it on your plant. And like, we fixed it, <laughs> you know? <laughs> True. 
it, it ignores the soil, the, the breakdown of organic matter over time, bacteria, fungi, earthworms, all that stuff uh, that makes up what's called the humus of the soil. Which is bad, I think. Maybe? It is. Okay. <laughs> has bad consequences bad. other than just sounding like mean. It sounds mean, but <laughs> science-wise, it's also not good. It's also not good. Uh, <laughs> plants grown in synthetically fertilized soil are shown to be less nutritious and uh, more vulnerable to diseases and pests. Um, it's bad for your soil. And, you know, they even like did basically a taste test on it. Like they, it's a scientific version of a taste test. It's I can't remember the name of it right now, but it's like it measures the amount of like natural sweetness in, in a fruit or vegetable and found that like the ones grown with like real ass dirt are tastier. Hmm, okay. But to me, this also points to a larger problem within science of, of reducing things to inputs and outputs. You know, think of the medical field. We're treating just symptoms. We're treating diseases. We're not doing preventative stuff. I, I also think of this as kind of the Tesla mindset or the Elon Musk mindset of like, what if we had like a transportation system? And it's like a tunnel and it's like really efficient. It's like, guys, we have trains. Like, we don't need to do that. <laughs> like, like it's a lot of bending over backwards for a silver bullet solution instead of looking at the whole problem. Right. Which isn't to say that we shouldn't be trying to, I don't say master the forces of nature, but like understand it all <laughs> and like, and, and use. No, definitely. Science. I don't want to be anti-science or anything. Yeah. And we can even, you know, it, I think it's a good thing to figure out how all these things work and use them to better like feed people and stuff but in a complete way that like sustainably does that or does that in a way that like doesn't you know put a torch to the place to to, to temper you know burn your house down to keep you warm for a night <laughs> is the analogy you know yeah yeah definitely and Let's go to the next example of fertilizer, because I think this one is a really clear example of, like, the good and evil of technology. Mm, okay. <laughs> okay. So, we're going to jump ahead to the 1940s, and we're going to talk about nitrates. I, I know precious little about nitrates. <laughs> okay, great. So, do you remember the nitrogen cycle from school? Uh, Vaguely. I think things die, and they, like, Put nutrients into the soil that's good for stuff to grow. Yeah, that's the basic idea. There's okay. also lightning in it, which means it's like one of the cooler diagrams in science textbooks. Holy shit. There, what, does it require lightning to do nitrogen? And so that's just another way you can what's called fix nitrogen, which is to like kind of activate it. You can shock it with lightning? Yeah, it will like naturally release nitrogen when that happens. Like it's part of the cycle. The normal way is like plants. <laughs> I got a new D&D &D character concept. <laughs> My name is Nitrogen. Gardener, <laughs> electric, like, uh, evocation Ooh. wizard, you know, but he's a gardener, basically. <laughs> That's always a very strong Pokemon combination, so I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> We're fucking nerds. <laughs> um. <laughs> yeah. Nitrogen is really important to plants, as we talked about in the NPK formula. It's also important in bombs, after World War II, we had a huge surplus of ammonium nitrate, which is a key ingredient in explosives. Yeah, not that we would know anything about that, but <laughs> NSA, FBI, what was it, Dave and Dan? Dave and Dan, our two buds in the van. 
<laughs> we don't know anything about that stuff. No, no. This, this, you got to ask Michael Pollan about that. <laughs> you check him out. The Department of Agriculture basically looked at all this and we're like, what do we what do we do with all this? <laughs> you know, we have too much. At one point, they thought about spreading it on the forests, which I'm like, wow, that would have been pretty wild. Uh, <laughs> but instead, they decided to use it on the farmland. Now, normally, the way you rotate your crops, you, you switch out corn with something like legumes because they will naturally restore the nitrogen in the soil. Um, you also can use manure from your animals. Well, with synthetic fertilizers, you could get your nitrogen artificially. And so the reason they were able to access all of this artificial fertilizer is because of a guy named Fritz Haber. And he invented a way to fix nitrogen artificially and is often credited with, like, keeping everyone from starving. Whoa, okay. <laughs> it, this massively increases our food and population capacity. It's estimated that two-fifths of humans would not be alive without this this breakthrough. Damn, okay. So he's he's kind of like the Green Revolution before it was a thing. Because that was a big thing in like the 50s and 60s, right? Or something was like we massively increase our food production. Like this is mm -hmm. a pre-version of that. Kind of. Because <laughs> it, it doesn't all go great for this guy. <laughs> well, yeah, I've heard of this dude in terms of World War One and <laughs> chemical warfare. So, <laughs> Yeah, so that was his kind of first thing on his resume was being a scientist for Germany in World War One. Uh, what happened was Britain cut off their nitrogen supply in Chile. And so he was like, well, fuck, we got to figure this out. And so he figured out how to do synthetic, obviously using that for like chemical warfare and things that were later used in like Hitler's concentration camps. This guy did some bad stuff. His wife even like killed herself because she couldn't, she was also a scientist and she like could not handle it. She was like, fuck this. You yeah. Know? Well, people put your work to bad use. Yeah. Yeah. But this this nitrogen fixing process in terms of food, you know, really increased our, our capacity. But it definitely has its drawbacks, too. Maybe not as, like, you know, obviously devastating as, you know, chemical warfare, but still pretty bad because, uh, one, it requires a huge amount of energy, usually from fossil fuel. But two, it, it starts this whole process of artificially fertilizing your crops, which ends up being really bad for a lot of different things, namely pollution. Farmers will often apply extra fertilizer to ensure a high yield or just to like pad it a little bit more, just like desperate for more yield. This results in runoff, which causes algae blooms and hypoxic zones in the ocean. Um, it causes acid rain, greenhouse gases, just an unclean water table, uh, in Des Moines, they have something called Blue Baby Alerts, which warn against giving children tap water because it will cut off oxygen to the brain. Uh, wow. Yeah. That, that's pretty dy dystopic. <laughs> it really is. Like, geez. And it's... And they call it Blue, ba blue Baby blue Alerts. Blue Baby Alerts. Yeah, yeah. It's a pretty grim, grim name. Wow. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> yeah, and so it, it's something that definitely, I don't know, it, it's interesting because it was such a an obvious good when it first happened. Like, holy shit, like China's not going to starve, you know, like all this kind of stuff. Yeah. But also has detrimental effects. Yeah. And it, well, 
it seems like it's it seems like this sort of a discovery this sort of a breakthrough is good or can be put to good use if you continue to build off of it and say okay how can we make this better when you see like the negative consequences start to happen you have to be like okay well we got to figure this part out next right like you can't just i mean and the problem with capitalism is it just stops to say it doesn't think about those things. It's thinking about profit, you know, and, and, and it's not thinking about social consequences, environmental consequences. Those are things to put off on other people. Yeah, that is, I think, the major sin of of our food system is that it is only focused on one metric. You know, if you think about when you go grocery shopping in most stores, unless you're going to like an organic kind of store, the main draw is price, you know, that's all they care about is, oh, eggs for, you know, 99 cents, whatever. And that's how the whole thing is propped up. It, it is just based on yield and efficiency and price. And that's it. That is the only quality we care about to the detriment of basically every other standard. <laughs> yeah, that was something that I got from the documentary, too, when they interviewed a guy we'll probably talk about later, Earl Butts. He was uh, he was the... Uh, U.S. Secretary of Agriculture, I think, under Nixon. Just and, the worst. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had known. I found him. I found how he was characterizing things as sympathetic, in a way. Obviously, we're just we're talking about now how incomplete that view is. But when you take, you know, from his point of view, it's like, look, we're able to pay so much less of our income in terms of food. Like he was just, like you said, thinking of just that metric of like. We're making food cheaper for people, you know, and obviously it's also sort of cynical. Like he's saying that means they'll buy more food <laughs> for our <laughs> corporations. I don't want to say that this guy's like a saint, but as far as policymakers go in a capitalist system, you can see why they would be like, oh, that's good. Like our people spend less of their money on that. We can get them to buy more Cadillacs or whatever. <laughs> yeah. And, and I understand this kind of mindset i mean the soviet union did this too like you want yield i get it like mm -hmm. you, you don't want hungry people that's a fucking scary thing to have but i think you have to be conscious of all the other factors is a thing and and capitalism does not allow for that there is one way to be good at it and that is profit yep another example of this kind of uh, perversion of natural forces for the <laughs> the god of yield <laughs> the mad scientist route <laughs> yes is uh, what's called hybrid seeds. And if you are more familiar with this term, maybe uh, would be GMO. In the 20th century, American corn breeders learned how to effectively make a mule out of corn by inbreeding strains with each other. Now you may be wondering, why the fuck would you do this? It's so you can sell seeds. Because <laughs> otherwise, you could just fertilize your own corn indefinitely. Okay, I thought they had to do this, like, really complicated. I thought something like Monsanto made, like, the death gene or the, you know, the <laughs> the the ki kills your crop gene where it, like, it works once, but it doesn't work, you know, it can't be fertilized again. But that was actually really early on that they did that? Um, no, they started it in the 20th century, but they, they continued it and, like, yeah, made it a lot more complicated. I mean, now they're making ones that can resist their brand of fertilizer so that you can spray it all the fuck over. But like, if you bought a different seed, it wouldn't work with that fertilizer. So it would kill your plants. Oh, nice. It's like a little package deal. <laughs> <laughs> 
So you have to buy like the same line of products, basically. Mm-hmm, Dude, mm-hmm. that's that's, uh, that's capitalism. <laughs> so yeah, now they could basically sell patented seeds, and and to me, this is a great example of how capitalism will take something that works perfectly, like you know a plant growing naturally, and then disrupt it to create an artificial need in the marketplace. Yeah, that's wild. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty ridiculous. Okay, we're going to go back a little. I know we're kind of jumping around in time. Doing my best here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're going to go to the 1930s and the New Deal. Heck yeah, we like this, right? Yeah, I, we do. I This is one of the high points, I think. <laughs> well, it starts out with a bummer because in 1933, the price of corn falls to zero. Free corn. Free corn, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Which is not what they were doing, though. No, it is not. So what ends up happening is normally you have a, a supply and demand kind of economic situation, right? That's that's capitalism. But with food, it kind of falls outside of that because there's only so much you can eat. <laughs> like, people can't eat past a certain amount as much as I try. thought it was all you can eat. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, when it's free, maybe. I don't know. Let me see how much corn I could put away. <laughs> <laughs> and then also the supply side is is a little difficult, too, because it's it's unpredictable due to weather conditions. And this has been the classic problem with farming, um, you know, going back since we started farming. The even Neolithic the Bible, revolution, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, even the Bible deals with this in, in having a granary set aside and, like, you know, figuring out how to keep prices kind of stable. Yeah, you gotta you gotta interpret the dreams and figure out like, okay, we gotta we gotta <laughs> store it all away for the seven years of famine or whatnot. <laughs> exactly, and that's kind of what the New Deal did. Not not quite so prophetic, uh, but they did create a <laughs> grain storage system to keep farmers afloat. That sounds good. Yeah, I mean, it actually not too bad. So so they established a target price for corn instead of just dumping corn on the market whenever the price got too low, which would, you know, exacerbate the problem by making the price go even lower. Farmers could now take a loan from the government using their crop as collateral. Um, you could store their corn until the price recovered um, and you wanted to sell or just sell that corn to the government and remain in what's called the ever normal granary. Um, so basically, we're just covering their costs. You know, we're, we're we're loaning them this money so they can like stay afloat um, and to not like push the market even further. Okay, is that kind of like? Because in the documentary, they were uh, in the King Corn documentary. They like they don't make they lose money, but at the end they get like paid for paid by the government some anyway. That's a different system, which we okay. will get to. That's Mr. Butts's work. Ah, uh, all right. <laughs> the first version of this, from what I could tell, seemed to work a little better. Okay. I mean, I don't know how it would have worked in the long run. Maybe there's some like big flaw in it that I'm not seeing. But this seemed to be, a, at the very least, a good stopgap for like the depression. Yeah, I mean, you're still fertilizing it all with those with the chemicals and stuff you were talking about, right? But, mm-hmm. but. You're, you're stabilizing the market such as it is in the sense that we care about, because we don't so much care about the market. Uh, <laughs> the people who rely on that income to feed their families, because that's that's a different time, right? Though the, Then you actually had small farmers. Exactly. Uh, and so, you know, you do need to be sympathetic to people like that. You know, they're working class back then. 
Exactly. Yeah, that's a great point. And, and farmers historically have really been a, a big force in populist movements in the United States like that. I mean, you mentioned the Whiskey Rebellion, like house farmers. Mm-hmm. Um, they often had common cause with the labor movement. Like they, yeah. you know, they're working people. There was the Farmer Labor Party around that time, too. Oh, yeah. Uh, there was the Populist Party before them. And I, you know, I did a little bit of bad Marxism there. Like that wasn't they're not they're not working class technically because like, they're not. <laughs> They do own land, so they're not just selling their labor unless they're like a farm hand. So they're more like peasants. But hey, it's mm-hmm. you know that there should still be that alliance. So yeah, yeah, they're close enough. Just I'll take don't, it. Don't yell at me for bad Marxism, people. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So this granary, we like it, but then we get to the 1950s, and some people in Congress don't like it. <laughs> what's their problem? Why? What's what? Remember how I said farmers were pals with, like, the labor struggles? Yeah. They didn't like that. That was too much (laughs) solidarity for them. Yeah. Now, you know, I don't want to say it was definitely a concerted mustache-twirling effort. But around this time is when uh, Washington basically starts dismantling the New Deal policies put in place. They're basically saying, well, if fewer people can grow more food because they're so efficient, we can now push out smaller farmers and start favoring large corporate food entities. And really the way they do this is just cheap corn. (laughs) Okay. So we're going to jump ahead just a little bit to the 1970s with the guy you've already mentioned, Earl Rusty Butts. And that's spelled B-U-T-Z, which is just, just a terrible name and a terrible guy, in my opinion, at least. Rusty Butts. Rusty I wouldn't go by Rusty if my name was Butts. I think I would. I don't know. Do you really want to own that? I'm Rusty Butts. <laughs> okay. I mean, hell, it's it's kind of cool. I it's guess. better than Earl. Earl Butts. Rusty is a little cooler. Okay. I'm on board again. I don't think this guy's that cool, though, because he was Nixon's second secretary of agriculture. Well, Nixon was bad, so. He was also... On the board of Ralston Purina, which kind of tells you where his interests lie. <laughs> I think you're you're right in in your earlier analysis that you can kind of understand where where this guy was coming from because in the 1970s, food prices were at an all time high. You had people protesting at supermarkets. Horse meat was coming back into the store. Like it was pretty rough. All right, <laughs> some horse jerky. What else do you... I've never had horse, I, I haven't either. Maybe a stew. I can't imagine. It's Listeners very tender. Listeners, write in. Tell us. Give us your best horse <laughs> recipes. Please. Give me your horse cooking recipes. <laughs> so, here's the thing, though. I don't know how much of this was caused by Earl Butts' own actions, because he arranged a sale to Russia of 30 million tons of grain because he was trying to get votes from the farmers, like for Nixon. Okay. And so he's like, oh, cool, I'm going to sell all this grain. But this ended up raising the price for, like, American grain. And so, (laughs) like, I I don't know. I can't tell, like, if it was a direct one-to-one, like, this definitely caused his own problem that he has to solve or what. Huh, maybe. I mean, it could have been related. Generally speaking, uh, looking at markets, I tend to... I tend to issue like, oh, one to one guy, yeah, or one action kind of 
triggered you know mm-hmm. there's to me it seems like there's usually structural forces i agree i think there was a lot going on i mean if you think of the 70s like prices got kind of whack for pretty much everything <laughs> so well, yeah they started to see stagflation too Ooh, what is that typically you when you see really lowering unemployment you start to see higher inflation and vice versa uh those go, those move in opposite directions usually um but in the late 70s to early 80s well it's really the late 70s tail end when carter comes in office you start to see both numbers rising more unemployment more inflation previous to that economists had just said no that's that's, not possible yeah and so they're all standing around scratching their heads like what the fuck you know (laughs) i don't think any economist knows anything (laughs) well that's what they found out yeah Yeah. (laughs) they didn't (laughs) oh yeah that's not a cute graph i bet no (laughs) not a good one you want to see Okay, so yeah, you have this very scary situation economically, and Rusty Butts is like, I'm going to fix this, I'm going to make food cheap. And, you know, he does do that. Let's let's give him credit. He does do that. Mm -hmm. But the way he does it is basically he tells the farmers, get big or get out. He tells them to plant fence row to fence row, make your farms bigger, make them more productive, consolidate. And institutes policies that heavily favor corporate operations over family operations. Another thing he does is dismantles the ever-normal granary we just talked about. And instead of doing loans, he starts doing direct payments to farmers. If you're like, well, what's the difference? You know, what this really does is the, the loan was keeping the price stable because you're incentivizing people to hold their corn off the market. But if you're just paying them for it, they can just fucking sell it. And so all that does is drive the price down just exponentially, you know? And if you're guaranteed to have someone to buy it, guess what you're going to grow to the exclusion of everything else? Fucking corn. (laughs) And corn's the only thing that they did this for. From what I could tell? Well, you know, actually, that's a great question. I mean, I know there's other kinds of farm subsidies, um, I mean, this book was definitely focused on corn, but I know soy also took off around the 1970s because you could rotate your, your corn with it as well. So maybe it was like just to select, you know, these fucking crops. Yeah, they ain't subsidizing lettuce as far as I know. <laughs> yeah, you know, no lettuce, no kale, no superfoods. <laughs> as far as I know, they don't. What about the poor acai farmers? <laughs> the struggling acai berry farmers. The, the avocado guys, too. Uh, I mean, my toast, it doesn't, you know. <laughs> I'm supposed to get my cheap toast. <laughs> Just to recap, he says, we're going to pay you money to grow corn. So grow a bunch of it. And then you can also sell it for super cheap because we've driven the prices down but you'll still make money because we're paying you well you'll make less money because the price is getting driven down so yeah but you will make money because we are paying you so that's why you would do it yeah i mean it became a sure bet it it became like it's almost like a, a a feedback loop you know of well, the price is lower, so I have to plant more, and that is also mm-hmm. going to make the price go lower. Yeah, there was this interesting scene, I think it was at the end, or near the end, of uh, the King Corn documentary, where, you know, they get their payment from the government. I think they lose money, but, like, this other guy was like, yeah, man, like, everybody would always lose all the money if we didn't get that government payment. And there, I think the other guy's operations were at the scale to where they, you know, netted some money. Versus these guys with their little acre, they didn't, you know, they didn't make money. But if you were, like you said, get big or go home, you know, 
you had to be up to a scale yeah to be able to to make any money off of it and that's really who benefits from these policies and it's in the 1980s that cargill and archer daniels midland these huge agricultural businesses they are starting to pal around with congress and have a hand in these policies and oh boy they make out like a bandit Mm -hmm. but yeah it, it is this really vicious system that because it's the most efficient crop that they can grow that that's what people are going to do you have farmers who are in debt trying to buy new equipment and the latest seeds and fertilizers just so they can get a little more yield. So they, they talk to a, a corn farmer in this book, George Naylor. He's funny. Like he just like shits on the New York times a lot. So I like him. <laughs> <laughs> but he has this quote that I thought was interesting. He says, the free market has never worked in agriculture and it never will. The economics of a family farm are very different than a firm's. When prices fall, the firm can lay off people, idle factories, and make fewer widgets. Eventually, the market finds a new balance between supply and demand. But the demand for food isn't elastic. People don't eat more just because food is cheap. <laughs> yeah, I mean, sometimes. Yeah, you can eat a little more. <laughs> well, which we'll, we'll talk about that, too. Which That's what you were saying about... Uh, that's that sort of relates to the ever normal granary, right? It's like it, there's there's a little bit of ina- inelasticity. Like you 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 know you will have all these crops either there or not based on natural forces. You will have a certain demand based on how many people there are, and not too much more or less than that because they're just humans with like intake valves, basically. Yeah, exactly. And and you know the the natural population growth normally that would exactly trend with how much profit you would make in the food industry well the food industry isn't okay with a one percent growth you know they're gonna do whatever the fuck they can to make that bigger yeah because their goal isn't how do we feed everyone <laughs> just, <you laughs> that's know, just not efficiently it. like yeah they're to make it's to make money it's mm-hmm. that that goal the profit incentive and so then the capitalist system is i mean i think that's our thesis here right is that's what's fucking it up (laughs) yes definitely like that that is the reason it's like this and that is the reason like you can't really have a family farm anymore you have to be a big mega corporation that's the reason we are having all this pollution and this like really confusing you know like we said earlier what to eat for dinner what the fuck like that's why we have a confusing food system yeah and a you know and one that's hard to pick like Hard to figure out. Good, good options. Right, yeah, like desirable, like wholesome uh, yeah, options yeah. for yourself. So yeah, this this takes off in a major way. You know, the federal treasury spent up to five billion a year uh, subsidizing corn in two thousand six. This is when the book was written. If you're curious about how that number is done over time, uh, between nineteen ninety six and twenty twenty, the total amount spent on corn subsidies is one hundred and sixteen billion. Well, that's only one-eighth of our federal education budget. <laughs> only. That's not so uh, bad. It could be worse. Well, it could be worse. <laughs> it could be all of it, I guess. It's barely anything compared to the defense budget, I'm sure. But Oh, God, it's a dent. <laughs> but, you know, and you could look at that and be like, look how much we're supporting farmers. But it's like, no, you're really supporting these these large operations in your... And what you're really, really doing, if you want to like step back another level, is you're supporting the corn buyers. Because by having all this cheap corn, you're supporting fucking Coca-Cola and Cargill because they can like swoop in there and get it for a song. Yeah, that's the thing that I 
that I find most interesting about this because, you know, the Earl Butzes of the world and the capitalist defenders will come out and say, well, gee, don't you want everyone to be able to buy groceries for cheap at the grocery store? Which, sure, we do. But what we're not talking about is how many of the products at the grocery store that you're buying or the fast food or, or, or the regular restaurants or whatever, how much uh, the suppliers of your food products are benefiting from this rather than you. Like they're going to charge you however much they can and get away with it. Like that's what they're going to charge Completely. you. Yeah. And their goal is to get corn syrup and to get, you know, corn additives for their meats and all that as cheaply as possible and then still sell you expensive products to pocket that extra difference. Like that, you know, <laughs> that, that's what they're, you know, that's who you're cheering on when you're cheering on low corn prices and stuff like that. Exactly. It is It is not just a, a regular farmer. It is not just a person at the supermarket. It is these, these giant companies that are benefiting. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about those, those farmers, though, and kind of how this whole shift really affects their life. Uh, because if you think about what, what we think about as a classic farm, you know, your horses, your cows, your pigs, whatever, all of this used to be able to feed your family and feed you know the the local economy your neighbors um it also was like good for your farm itself you know you could like really build upon your farm yeah man you go around you break up rocks you cut down (laughs) trees uh you find a mermaid pendant and ask elliot to marry you yeah you know and and you just kind of go around also and give gifts to people it was you know farming to me seems like a nice life gift taking takes a lot of the day a surprising (laughs) amount of farming is giving gifts to people in stardew valley i (laughs) i spend uh, a stupid amount of time just 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 fishing and stuff (laughs) (laughs) me too i love the mines it's so soothing yeah i'm barely a farmer in that game anyway oh yeah anyway (laughs) But these farmers were actually farming. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the iconic, like, pillar of the community type is what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. But as corn becomes the only crop in town, because it's the only thing you can rely on, it it just takes over. We talked about fence row to fence row. This gets rid of hedges. So you have huge wind erosion now. Mm, yeah, yeah. That was a New Deal thing, right? Like the windbreaks and stuff. They, the, they, they had the CCC and, and New Deal programs go in and teach farmers and, and, and actually go in and plant these big windbreaks and stuff out, out in the Dust Bowl. Oh, that's right. The soil conservation stuff yeah. that was in the 1930s. Uh-huh. Yeah. But, you know, come 1950s and 1970s, that, that goes away <laughs> like, because you, who needs that? you were being pressured to expand. Yeah. Okay. Can't afford windbreaks anymore. Yeah, I mean, the topsoil in Iowa has already been reduced by half due to wind and erosion. Holy shit, since when? Like what? Uh, let me see. They're they're interviewing that same farmer, George Naylor, I like him. He says, only the New York Times would be dumb enough to print that. <laughs> <laughs> so good. I think that a lot when reading stuff in the Times. Same. Especially when it's a particularly hard crossword. <laughs> oh, I hate that. Oh, there the Sunday last Sunday was just rude. <laughs> there were so many old people questions. I that's, just couldn't do that's it. That's what that's what the listeners come here to hear. How do we play Stardew Valley, <laughs> and what are our crossword preferences? <laughs> okay, let's see. Yeah, it looks like it's from 1919, which is when 
George Naylor's grandfather bought the farm. They estimate the topsoil to be about four feet. And uh, it's down to two feet in 2006. So almost 100 years. Knock it in half. Okay. All right. I wonder how <laughs> they'll great. be able to do with one foot of topsoil. And you got to imagine you do an exponential <laughs> or something. Time. Yeah, like 50 yeah. years, you know? Yeah, it can't be great. Because they don't fucking care. Like, if it gets bad enough, they're already designed for... They're, they're already thinking, like, yeah, sure, we're going to, you know, fuck this place completely over. They're already talking about, like, how can we, you know, build a colony ship and build a greenhouse on Mars and do some other fucking ridiculous capital-intensive project to bleed some other celestial body dry you know (laughs) or even you know closer to home you know they're already looking at other countries on like where can we get a lot of our food from other countries already but it's gonna start being corn i'm sure yeah and i mean because that's been in the news lately right with ukraine and like the the Mm -hmm. grain supplies and stuff there that yeah i mean just fucking do some more imperialism and and take over another place (laughs) and there you go So also, you know, technology changes the farm. Um, As you get the tractor, you don't need horses, which means you don't need to grow oats. As you get artificial fertilizer, you don't really need manure, so you don't kind of need a lot of animals. Plus, we start feeding corn to cows and pigs for meat, and so you can't compete with those, and so you stop growing those, you stop taking care of those anyway. You stop keeping them. So as the corn yields increase, which they do, like farmers are insanely productive now. An average Iowa farm of corn and soybeans grows enough to feed 129 Americans, which really makes these people like the most productive humans on earth. <laughs> yeah, it's that's <laughs> super wild. Back in the day, when we were talking about the Whiskey Rebellion times and everything, it's something like 93 or something like that percent of Americans are living in the country, are yes. engaged in agriculture. And it's something like 2% or something like that now? Um, I have that number somewhere. Give me a second. <laughs> I'm sorry. Do you like that? Yeah. They come for Stardew preferences, crossword preferences, and... <laughs> My little song. Yes. Okay. Yes, I have the stop. I found it. In 1919, a quarter of Americans lived on a farm. Now it's fewer than two million, and they grow enough to feed everybody. Yeah. It's insane. And like... Again, we're we are not opposed to the ability to do that. Like, think about if you hopped in a time machine from back then and you got to come up to nowadays <laughs> and be like, "Holy shit, there's food everywhere!" Yeah, like my descendants look at this paradise that they're living in, food production-wise. Uh, that's great. That's that's a great capacity to have. But just like, I think that the reason that it's being done um, produces all these other problems that we're seeing. Well, that's the thing. It's not like it's regular food. It's one type of food, and it's not edible. Oh, yeah, that's the other big <laughs> You thing. can't live off of that food if you're farming it. Like, it's it's water everywhere, not a drop to drink, man. Like, you're just like, because we're not talking about classic yellow corn, which we'll get to. Corn on the cob, it, yeah. it's Yeah, it's it's field corn, which is just shitty. That was uh, the big thing, that watching the documentary, because I remember thinking mm-hmm. that, I was like, oh, this is you know, in a way, kind of beautiful. Like, you can, you can do so much more, but you're growing shit. Like, you're... No, they try to eat it and they spit it out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's and that's the part that is the is the the corrupt, but like the... Uh, the maladaptive. The like, the, it's, it's the deformed part of it. Is that it... Is that all this, like, ability 
to produce is is channeled so poorly, so inefficiently. Because how you know what does that have to go into? It has to go into corn syrup and animal feed, like, and it's like those. That's the least efficient way to <laughs> to use that. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it maybe is the most efficient in terms of pure calories and pure, you know, in, in the, the, the word efficient is always so difficult because, mm. yeah, it, technically it's efficient in a capitalist sense, yeah. but in every other sense of the word, it's terrible. Right. It's, it's poor for humanity. Like, that's a bad <laughs> yes, choice yes. for poor quality. society. Yeah. <laughs> Which, again, that's our, I think our thesis here is like, this is great, but like the, the capacity is great, but it's really poorly used. It's poorly planned out because that's another thing that stood out to me throughout this whole thing is that we've been talking a lot so far about government policy driving this and people like to complain, oh, you know, you Marxists, you anarcho-communists even, you want, you want to plan things out and you don't want want to have society like planning things and central planning and all this. It's not going to work. We like currently basically centrally plan our economy Oh, yeah, but we just do it so we can pay our friends more. Yeah, like, it's just, <laughs> it's it's a kleptocracy right now. It's it's centrally planned to make a few suits more money. If we centrally planned to make, like, a good food system for everyone, <laughs> we, we would have a better out, outcome. <laughs> yeah, because that's the thing. Like, I'm, I'm thinking about, like, that quiz we took last week on, on production versus the environment. And, and that is set up as a binary in that sense and it doesn't have to be right it is currently <laughs> and, and that has historically been a huge issue with with uh any kind of socialist project is answering you know the food question answering the efficiency question all that stuff and like there has to be a way to do that and also like account for bigger issues for real or other issues yeah mm-hmm. so yeah basically family farm gets destroyed <laughs> there it goes say goodbye um, yeah, yeah. And, you know, they're they're buying into all the hybrid seeds, the fertilizers, all that stuff. At one point, George Naylor is like, I don't see why I should... He, he doesn't buy the, the hybrid seeds. And he says, uh, I fail to see why I should launder money for Monsanto. <laughs> <laughs> Which is great. Good, good fucking point, man. I love him. <laughs> and and uh, to me, this really rang familiar. You know, it reminded me of Open Veins because... What you end up having is these farmers who are so desperate to to produce yield because they're the ones growing the raw materials. But the people who are really profiting are the ones who are taking that raw material and turning it into something else for more money. Yeah. You're just producing something cheaply to, yeah, to let someone else basically rob you of it, you know? And the government's giving you enough money to, like, to come back around next year, basically. <laughs> yeah, they're keeping you alive, but just barely. Yeah. All right, so let's talk about that corn that isn't edible, uh, which is number two field corn. So when you get the railroad, we figure out, well, instead of just hauling things in burlap sacks with the farm logo printed on it, it makes a lot more sense to dump it all in the same cart. (laughs) Yeah, okay. And to ensure quality, the Chicago Board of Trustees institutes this grading system. And it basically is responsible for saying any number two corn is as good as the next. So you don't have to care where it comes from and their requirements were pretty low. So the new metric is just yield. You know, again, we only care about yield and the people that benefit from this are obviously the larger businesses. And uh, I want to take a second to talk about some of those Cargill and Archer Daniels Midland. They are the two main corn buyers. They are the system. (laughs) 
they they do everything. They are it's a monopoly. They they do the pesticides, fertilizers, they operate the grain elevators, um, they do shipping and brokering, they do milling, livestock feed, slaughtering, ethanol, uh, they of course manufacture corn syrup, a bunch of other additives in the process as well. And of course they are friends with our our good buddies in Congress. <laughs> <laughs> you think? Cargill, fun fact, biggest privately held corporation in the world. Cargill, I I pulled up their Wikipedia page also because I found oh, them interesting. Oh, they got a great controversies tab. <laughs> I haven't even gotten that far. Oh, check I it out. I just saw uh, if they were a public company, they would rank number 15 on the Fortune 500. And all the eggs used in McDonald's restaurants go through their plants. Oh, my God. That is so many eggs. So many eggs, guys. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I did. I do love a good controversy section, and theirs does not disappoint. They got human rights abuses. They got food contamination, including a link to something called the 1971 Iraq poison grain disaster. Wow. They also have like a separate Wikipedia page, Criticisms of Cargill. <laughs> yeah, you know it's hot then. Yeah. If you, if you like, it's bad. You know, it's not great to have like a criticisms tab, but... To have a criticisms page? That's like Henry Kissinger level of ad. <laughs> oh, we can only dream. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to move on to a depressing place, which is the feedlot, uh, which is where 60% of our corn production goes to. That's, first of all, crazy. It's a lot. More than half <laughs> of the corn that we produce just straight to so is that also the number two corn or whatever is that it is yeah okay. it's that shitty corn <laughs> the animals they're they're fine well you know they may not be fine with it. they may fucking oh hate they're it, not they fine it. with it <laughs> let me just tell you they're not fine with it most of them at least so yeah in the 50s that's when we really started moving animals to feed lots and small farms couldn't compete with this model the reason was uh raising cows on grass takes a long time mm -hmm. and originally you would just kind of fatten them with corn right before slaughter yeah. yeah but now we're just gonna do it the whole time uh, almost the whole time usually cows like the first maybe six months or so of our life get to eat grass which is what cows are supposed to fucking do but then they're most most cows unless you get something okay also if you're ever buying meat and you're looking like okay can i get one that's not i want grass-fed beef no yeah. grass finished Ooh. grass-fed apparently does it means that at one point they were fed grass what you can just do that yeah you can just I don't know the exact specifications of it, but I know grass finish is what you actually want if you want corn or if you want cows that aren't corn. Dude, that that's some pretty bad truth in advertising. It's it? very confusing. That makes me question, man. I go to the restaurant and it says all employees washed their hands here. <laughs> At one point in this guy a shift, did. he washed his hands. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's very confusing. So what ends up happening is they, they move these cows to the feedlot and... Um, they get some help from the old USDA because their grading system um, rewards corn-fed beef. It, it rewards marbling, mm. uh, which comes from higher mm. fat content, uh, which favors corn. Um, so if you're a small farmer, you can't compete with that unless you switch to corn, too. Yeah. I mean, now you can rely on a niche market that wants the grass-fed beef, you know, for mm -hmm. a different flavor profile and things like that. I mean, it's a thing. Yeah, I, I buy grass-fed beef now. 
<laughs> yeah, but like, you know, your real like steak heads will still be like, yeah, but you know, you want, well, they'll be like, you want the Wagyu stuff, but mm-hmm. you know, you still want, you know, you want that marbling, you want the, I forget the grades. I'm not a steak head as you can see, but <laughs> <laughs> you know, you want that highest grade cause it's got the real marbling and it'll do all the rendering of the fat and stuff. Yeah, and and that's the thing is that that was basically put in place by by government system saying this is grade A stuff or whatever, you know. And, you know, you always hear about how eating meat is so bad for us. Probably what's actually bad for us is corn-fed meat because it is so Mm. much fattier. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, I mean, and and the amounts, too. That's another thing is just how much meat we're marketed to. Yeah, (laughs) how much meat we're like, you know, convinced to eat, I guess. So a factory farm is not a great place. Um, cows are, are what's called a rumen, which is an animal that is like supposed to eat grass. Like it has it has the guts for that. But instead, we are feeding them corn, which they cannot naturally digest. Uh, what happens to them then? They get really bad bloating um, because like there's fermentation happening in their tummies, and it's just it's really bad for them. Like no, natural fermentation is okay, but because corn is so acidic. Um, it causes like too much bloating. Um, it can cause acidosis, uh, which can like lead to a weakened immune system, uh, which obviously means more diseases. And especially if you're in close quarters, which they all are. Yeah. <laughs> their livers will uh, eventually, if you just keep doing this and you don't slaughter them, they're just going to die from like liver failure. Some feedlots have as much as 70% of their cattle suffering from abscessed livers. It's it ain't good, guys. It's it is gross. It is gross and it is inhumane. I think in the documentary at one point they say it's good they slaughter them when they do because they would die. Yeah, there was a guy, the guy they talked to in the parking lot. He was eating. He's <laughs> eating I, McDonald's. Dude, I identified with this guy because I fucking eat fast food. I eat meat sometimes. I try to we so we try to be more vegetarian, but it's just sort of a assuagement of our guilt sort of thing. But um. <laughs> Yeah, no, I felt like I was like, man, I, you know, I chow down and stuff and also am thinking like, damn, they do these bad things to animals. <laughs> oh, I do too. Like I get fast food like every week. <laughs> um, but yeah. So is that true? Like what he was saying or how you're saying like, oh, they have all these health problems. Like, do they just basically slaughter them on such a quick time scale? Like so that they, you know. Mm, they kill them basically right before they would otherwise collapse from all these other problems that come from force feeding them corn. Yeah. And the time scale is shortened significantly because corn fattens them up faster. Um, it used to take like a couple of years to, to get to slaughter weight. And now you can do it in months and just pump them out like crazy. And this is sort of what we do to chickens too, right? Maybe a different chickens as details, well, yeah. but like they are so big and they can't like they can barely walk and they can't. Yeah. They're super like super fast turnover because of that. Yeah, same same deal. Okay, it's all fucked up. That that is all. You can think what you want about like the lessened capacities of of animal like perceptions mm-hmm. and whatnot, but I mean, you're not letting a cow be a cow. Yeah, and cows are already weird creatures. Like we did breed them to be <laughs> this specifically versus like wild cattle and stuff. I get it, but mm-hmm. still, no one. That should not be your state of being. Yeah, it's like, you know, if you see, like, a dog chained up somewhere versus, like, having a real, like, yard to play in and and a family to be... Like, those are different categories of treating a dog. 
like one you should do versus one you shouldn't. And that's, that's kind of how I feel about this is like, even if you see them as like a step down from you and, and whatnot, that's fine. But like, you still shouldn't treat them that way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like it's, it's horror show level stuff, like to, to clear up the, the gases in their stomachs, they'll shove a fucking tube down their throat. It's, it's just horrendous stuff, you know? Um, to me, this whole process really exemplifies that input output thing I was talking about earlier, because what they do is, Instead of taking a second and be like, wow, this corn's making them sick, let's stop feeding them corn, which is like a normal fucking idea, they say, well, let's treat all their illnesses. <laughs> right, yeah, because to be honest, like, in animal medicine in general, you do have to, like, do things that are, like, unnatural because you have to treat problems that came up, and that's that's fine. But yeah. it's, if it's a problem that you cause you cause and continue to cause, <laughs> you, you know, stab somebody like, I don't know what happened. <laughs> right. There's a difference. I mean, when, you know, to, you mentioned, we were talking about the granary and the Bible stuff and whatever, you know, it's a difference to be like, oh yeah, I'm sorry for sinning or whatever, fully with the intent to go do it again. <laughs> That's a different thing than like saying, oh, I'm going to quit and actually trying to change things, even if you fail, <laughs> like... Here it's just like, oh, yeah, hey, let's fix this problem and continue to do this thing. Yeah, it's like you're creating more problems for yourself. And and this one, it's like a fucking Rubicon of problems because so you're, you're one, you're feeding them corn. That's the main problem. Two, they're really crowded. That's another problem because they're going to get sick easier. Mm -hmm. Instead of like, you know, stepping back and being like, maybe we don't do these things. You instead pump them full of antibiotics. You give them even more supplements uh, for to fatten them up even faster often other cow parts which is not good because that's how you get mad cow disease whoa they probably like have some sort of regulation on that right they do you can still do beef tallow wait i'm sorry you can feed them beef tallow like rendered you can still feed them beef tallow as far as i know but you can't do just regular parts anymore i think it's only limited to that damn dude you can't eat human bones anymore but you can eat human rendered fat <laughs> <laughs> but what sucks is there's there's no regulations for other species so like you can feed like cow parts to chickens and you can feed chicken parts to cows and so like it, the shit's still in there <laughs> you yeah, know I mean, like that's that's asking for trouble <laughs> true <laughs> uh, this is just it's grim. gross guys i'm sorry if you eat meat <laughs> Yeah, we're, we're going to get into kind of the ethics of meat eating and stuff in part two and, and all that, uh, just because it's a pretty big topic. But in the meantime, let's learn more gross facts about cows and corn. So because they're so, the cows are so fucked from the system, and really chickens and pigs too. For now, we're talking about cows, but chickens are also not treated well. We pump them full of antibiotics. And what's interesting is we've legislated against treating uh, animals with biotic antibiotics to healthy animals, like preemptively giving them antibiotics, which like, that sounds good, right? Like, yeah, that's less antibiotics. That's probably good for us. But you can still use them for sick ones. And since basically all feed ant law animals are sick all the time, they're all getting antibiotics all the time. <laughs> yeah, they have to taper off or something before they use them for meat or something like that, right? They have some sort of like, I think that's correct. I think now, I think since the book was written, we've gotten a little bit more strict on that. Yeah, but that's not to say they don't use it a lot or that that's not using up a big chunk of, I think they said like 70% of antibiotics was used for livestock in the documentary. Yeah, 
Yeah, that's wild. And yeah, that <laughs> for people who are concerned with like superbugs, yeah, superbugs and and things, yeah, getting resistant to antibiotics, like <laughs> that's bad. It's pretty bad. And yeah, you mentioned earlier that, you know, we've bred these cows and we're continuing to do that. You know, we're definitely selecting for cows that don't get as sick on a corn diet. And we're really stretching this corn to the point where there are efforts to get salmon to eat corn so we can use more of the corn on them. Like farmed salmon and stuff, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Man, I kind of already imagined that they did, but I guess they're not to that stage. I probably did. I haven't looked it up, actually. (laughs) So, yeah, we're really just looking at every animal we eat and thinking, how can we get more corn in here? (laughs) It's a corn machine. Yeah. And it's not because, like, that's naturally what's more available, or that's, like, it's just because that's cheapest. That's the bottom line. Like, it's not the best environmental or the best social or any sort of even really the best economic solution on a like big huge scale if you factor in all the externalities and stuff it's it's only like the best solution for private companies that can push those negative consequences onto other people yeah yeah it it is only efficient in like this strict economical sense of the term and even then it doesn't really hold water because you you think about how much we're paying for healthcare and Mm -hmm. the environment and taxpayer cost to subsidy programs and also another point, fucking fossil fuels, because that this is a huge uh, component of our food system because um, it goes into every single step of the process because we're transporting things oh, everywhere yeah. and, you know, fertilizers and, and all those kinds of chemicals, like they're all kind of based in the petroleum industry. Like it's, it's really steeped in that system as well. Yeah. Dude, this is making me feel like, fucking Kropotkin you know you gotta be you just gotta super local tear it all down and go garden the local parks (laughs) (laughs) but don't use MPK (laughs) (laughs) yeah I mean uh, one thing I I really appreciate that Pollen does is is almost every step of his kind of food journey he'll stop and tally up how much like fossil fuel is being used in the process Mm mm-hmm And it says if one steer eats 25 pounds of corn a day and reaches a weight of 1,200 pounds, he will have consumed an estimated 35 gallons of oil in his lifetime. That is barely anything in terms of the number of like cattle that are slaughtered a year. Like, because it's, it's in the, it's an insane amount, isn't it? Do you have those numbers? I don't actually. I'm Googling animals slaughtered per year. (laughs) It's going to be a lot. Oh, there's the 2022 U.S. animal kill clock. Oh, wow. Okay. How much are we looking at? Every day, people slaughter an incomprehensible number of chickens, turkeys, rabbits, sheep, goats, and cows for food. According to one estimate, 200 million land animals are slaughtered around the world every single day. Holy shit. A day? That's 72 billion a year. Oh my God. That is an unfathomable number. That is, yeah, that's crazy. Oh my God. Annual U.S. animal deaths, 36 million cattle. Wow. So think about the gallons of oil mm-hmm. going into that into the production. The animal's just sitting there doing it, but it's the humans carting around the fertilizer and the corn, like you were saying. and. Yeah, all this pesticides, stuff. tractors, all of it. And then, yeah, the the animal to slaughter, the the slaughter p- 
proportion to the to the freezing you know whatever and then then truck that to wherever you got to truck it to <laughs> and all that oh and remember how i said cows spend part of their life eating grass that's often a different farming operation so you ship the cows to a feedlot to finish so it's it's huge <sighs> and and they also do an estimate for um, adding up all of the oil from the process of so fertilizers, pesticizers, tractors, transportation, everything. Every bushel of industrial corn requires between a half to a third of a gallon of oil to grow it, uh, which is 50 gallons of oil per acre. And that's on the low end of wow. the estimate. To round out those animals, because I know I just mentioned cattle. Mm, yeah. Pigs, 124 million a year. Jesus chickens eight billion yeah we eat a lot of chicken i mean they're smaller but yeah yeah crazy that's nuts another thing that that i think is interesting in in this book is like he often returns to like a natural food web or food chain being traditionally sun-based you know your son grows the grass the animals eat the grass we eat the animals (laughs) right Lion yeah. King. What about the antelope? Yeah. <laughs> but because we have supplanted all of this now, we've, we've threw corn in the mix. We are instead of, like, you still get sun energy going into corn and corn going into animals. Like, sure, you still have that. But because you're spending so many, much fossil fuels on, on all of this system, you're really spending way more energy for way fewer calories. In, in normal sun-based system, you get two calories of food energy per one calorie of solar energy, which is like a pretty good fucking deal. But in a fossil fuel system, you're looking at 10 calories of fossil food fuel energy to produce one calorie of processed food. Whoa. All right. And that's, <laughs> so that's, is that mostly taking into account like the inefficiency of meat in terms of caloric production? Or is that ju- even on the plant level? This is more so on the, the processed food level, which we're about to get into. So okay. so really, if you're looking at, um, you know, like a Pop-Tart or something. Yeah. You know? Okay. Because I was going to say, you know how in science class you're like, oh, well, the cows, they eat the grass and they, you know, and then when you eat the meat from that, it's like you get some of the energy, but it's less efficient. You than lose if some you of it. Yeah. That's how I was wondering if it was that step or if it's. And that's still true. Like, you still are losing that. It's a two-to-one ratio. You're losing half of it. Yeah, that's, that's the loss. <laughs> Meat is, in that way, way more expensive mm-hmm. calorically than... It's, it's way less... Yeah, we keep using this term efficient, but not in the capital sense, but, like, just <laughs> in terms less. of calories, like, it's way less efficient than plant-based stuff. Exactly. Which, that's more part two stuff. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, you're doing great. <laughs> so let's talk processed foods. We've already brought it up. Guys, basically corn is in everything. You can't avoid it. <laughs> uh, I've heard it described as like the middle of your grocery store is corn. Um, that's pretty accurate. But I, I would say maybe, I don't know. Most more? of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. 25% of a supermarket's skews will be corn. Basically, any sort of processed foods will contain some sort of corn, usually corn syrup or corn starch, corn flour, all that stuff. But also additives like gels and stabilizers and thickeners. You also have it in a lot of non-food items. Cosmetics, diapers, trash bags, charcoal briquettes. Even in produce, uh, vegetable wax used to keep uh, things like zucchinis nice and shiny. Huh. Even the cardboard boxes uh, contain 
popcorn. I think it's like the glue maybe that, I don't know, there's some sort of component in there. Uh, construction, fiberglass, linoleum, adhesives, uh, wallboard compound, just, it's everywhere. Damn, we're living in a corn world. Living in a corn world. <laughs> now, the most valuable of these these products would probably be high fructose corn syrup. That's the one that, you know, if you've if you've heard any of the buzzwords or health concerns or you've been on like a facebook moms group or something you know this is the, <laughs> this is the nemesis right this is the one we got to look out for high fructose corn syrup definitely it is sweeter than sugar you know it's it's in like fucking ketchup and like ridiculous things that doesn't need to be in you know yeah it was pretty good in this soda i gotta say I mean, yeah, I like a soda. Don't get me wrong. I'll still fuck with it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, to me, this exemplifies the idea of that excess biomass having to go somewhere. In our case, it's sugar. <laughs> yeah. Food becomes this this supply-driven business. Of what do we fucking do with all this corn? And manufacturers are the ones really making out like a bandit here. Because instead of um, having to be a farmer and be susceptible to weather and over and under production and like all the rising debt and all that shit, they can just take that raw product. They can easily substitute items out because their ingredients are so processed down to like chemical level that if that day cotton oil happens to be cheaper than corn oil, they can just swap it out. So they're taking none of the risk. Yeah. And that's part of the government's role, right, is not necessarily to, I mean, right, they're not so concerned with keeping the farmers, like, going in so much as there are even farmers anymore versus, like, farm companies, right? But they're just interested in keeping that as a cheap supply for these large manufacturers of processed foods, right? I would say, yeah. I mean, they're, I mean, if it's not intentional, it's definitely the effect is they're the ones who are benefiting. I think it's it's pretty intentional, though, because they, like we said, they're best buds yeah. <laughs> with Congress. <laughs> they play golf together. Yeah. So we talked a little bit earlier about the, the inelastic demand of food. You know, people can only eat so much. But the food industry, obviously, is not okay with that, you know, 1% growth a year. They're like, that, that ain't good. So they figure out how to, to get people to eat more, which the answer is sugar, because our bodies naturally will not slow down when you eat sugar in terms of like your hunger cues where we will eat more sugar when it is available. We'll eat higher fat things when it's available. Because like, if you think evolutionarily, that's a good idea. If you're like a hunter gatherer out in the wilderness. For sure. Yeah. You don't know when you're going to get another scone, you know? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe in their times, more of a a wild berry. Who the hell left the scone out here? I don't know, but better (laughs) eat it. Invented flour. Did you do that? No, it wasn't me. Don't know when I'll find another cupcake out here. <laughs> Got to chow down. <laughs> but yeah, no, I get what you're saying. Like, it, this is something we mentioned before, right? Is that humans have evolved, like, basically not at all <laughs> from our caveman days. So it's like, uh, we're, we're still wired genetically, like, just brainstem wise to hoard all of those extra fats, all of those extra sugars and everything as much as we can and to pursue it. That's like, what is good to us? Yeah, because that's naturally rare in nature. But, you know, is it's no longer rare. It is the most common thing you can find. Yeah. Um, I will note, if you are trying to read this book, um, 
you know, Pollen gets a little fat phobic here, really equating weight and health. Um, that's chapter six, if you'd rather skip that. I, I try to focus more on like specific health concerns in, in my notes. So uh, just remember that. And also like, even if you're unhealthy, you still deserve respect and all that. Yeah. Yeah. And I was, so. I was, well, pr- we probably cut that. So <laughs> I was going to say, I, tr- I tried to like, try to find synonyms or something for health oh, yeah. because it was. I appreciate it. And I think too, like you have to be fair in like the options people are presented like this. The documentary talks about this too. And they, they do kind of a similar take on it as well of like oh this is what's causing us to you know be fat but you know they do say like that's the cheapest food is the unhealthy food society and anytime really that you see people get on a tear about oh this unhealthy food or this you know bad food system that we have a lot of times they get into like why do people make these bad choices and why are they you know it get like you said it gets fat phobic and stuff so that's something to keep in mind is or to look out for is that people aren't just stupid and making, you know, duh, just want to choose. They're trying to survive. Yeah, like they're they're making difficult choices day to day when they don't have any more energy to to decide uh, to make these difficult choices. You know, they've just been ground between the gears of of their boss and and the necessity of eking out a survival day to day. And then they have to figure out how the hell am I going to get food on the table for my kids and everything. And it's just like the easiest option, you know, it's, it's the easiest. And sometimes it's the only depending where you live. Like yeah. it's, there's a lot of factors going into that and it's much more complicated. So some of the ways that, that people, people, the corporations, <laughs> also <laughs> people in there, I guess. Um, but they figured out how to get us to eat more. One of them is, is supersizing. Well, a guy that was with McDonald's realized that people don't like going for seconds because it makes them feel bad. Uh, but if you just increase the serving size, you can get them to uh, pay a little more and eat a little more. And you may think, oh, okay, well, at least I'm getting more value. Uh, <laughs> but like, they're really not passing on those savings. Like, they're still making a profit off of that. You know, like a, a good example is in, in 1984, Coke and Pepsi switched to high fructose corn syrup. Um, which is cheaper than sugar. Note that we also put tariffs on sugar cane, uh, thanks to some fucking lobbying from guess who, corn refiners. <laughs> <laughs> but instead of making the price of a Coke cheaper um, and, you know, passing that on to consumers, they're just going to make the bottles supersized and make more money. Yup. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's what I keep thinking about today. You hear about all these, the food prices are rising, all the prices are rising, all that stuff. And I'm like, Take a look at their profits. I bet those aren't falling. <laughs> oh, yeah. They're not even just breaking even. They're increasing by a lot. You can't say, oh, poor companies. They had to raise their prices. Oh, like, that yeah. never happens. And, you know, the typical e- economist arguments come out and they say, oh, you know, when wages are rising, they're driving this up. Uh, motherfucker, <laughs> when you, the are, fuck do wages rise? Yeah, are you seeing wages rise right now? Like, <laughs> that's not happening. Their profits aren't going down, but the prices are going up. You know, any other time in history, you call this price gouging is what you call it. Yep, 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 yep. Uh, uh, but no, you're right. Like that that sort of savings doesn't get passed on. It's just bloop. It's just siphoned off. <laughs> it goes right into their shit. Yeah. yeah. So kind of wrapping up here, Pollen wraps up this section of the book with a trip to McDonald's. Uh, he, he views it as the, the industrial meal. And... Uh, some interesting little facts if you're a McDonald's fan. Which I, full disclosure, am. 
I absolutely am. I love those fucking fries. I hate it in a way because I know <laughs> that it's like the evil empire. You know, it, it's 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 an it, objectively it, evil company. It feels bad. Mm-hmm. In in that specific like intellectual sense, but it feels good in the oh, taste yeah. sense. Like I like, it. and this not an ad for them. Don't you know? Don't, <laughs> don't change do your behavior one way or the other. Do what you're gonna do. But I like it. That's my sort of confession, I guess. No, it's <laughs> it's my little lizard brain being like, yes, I need it. <laughs> a McNugget has thirty eight ingredients. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, first off, that's a lot of ingredients for a nugget. I thought it'd just be like chicken and some batter. Well, I knew a little bit because I've seen some TikToks where. People will be like, you know, mine or McDonald's and they'll like make chicken nuggets, but they like blend up chicken essentially, you know, and do all this stuff to it. It looks pretty good, but I was like, I guess it is, you know, it does have some sort of complexity to it if you have to do all that to make it. (laughs) Oh, for sure. Yeah. It is not a real piece of chicken. Holy shit. 38. Do you want to guess how many of those 38 are derived from corn? 15. Oh, you're very close. 13. Dude, I'm a good guesser. All right. You are a good guesser. You're on point today. <laughs> All right. Other synthetic ingredients come from such pals as petroleum or <laughs> chemical plants. <laughs> Great. I love the taste of petroleum mm. in the morning. Oh, you know what else is really delicious? Uh, suspected carcinogens, potential reproductive effectors. One ingredient is even flammable. <laughs> <laughs> they, they put some 151 on there. <laughs> So, uh, pretty good. <laughs> Damn. Okay. They're great, though, but okay. I'm not Never big mind. on the nugs. I, I dig them, but. I, I'm more of a burger person myself. Okay. All right. Taste, taste different, as Lennon said. Taste different. <laughs> what would he think about the McNugget? He would burn it down, like the, <laughs> the building that he got them from. <laughs> Another corn estimate here. Uh, Pollen estimates that between the three meals he purchased at McDonald's, plus the ethanol in the car. Uh, don't forget about ethanol, guys. That's also where we put excess True. corn. They always they have a stamp here in Texas anyways, like 10% ethanol. But he estimates between that used in their trip to McDonald's that he uh, the family per- consumed enough corn to overflow the car's trunk. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, remember that little science fact we had earlier about C4? He was... was able to put his meal through a spectrometer to determine what percentage of his food were basically corn. I've got some numbers here for you. Soda (laughs) coming in at 100%. That's just corn. Just corn. All right. (laughs) Uh, Milkshake. You think, okay, that's milk probably, right? Mostly, yeah. 78% corn, though. (laughs) It's very sweet, (laughs) I guess. Shit. Yeah. Salad dressing, 65. Salad. Okay. Yeah, all, all sugar. Which I don't get at McDonald's, but okay. Yeah, why would I? Like, fuck, I'm making McDonald's. I eat what you eat, but... <laughs> they talk about that, though. They they said they lose money on salads or, like, they don't make nearly as much, but it's basically so you can't protest if the group wants to go oh, there. Oh, okay, yeah. So you can be like, oh, you know, they have a salad for you. Don't worry. Yeah, okay. Chicken nuggets come in at 56%. Cheeseburger, 52 and french fries. This one I thought was really interesting because they're like potatoes, right? That's uh-huh. it. That's like the only ingredient. Well, in the oil, but yeah. And that's the thing. 23%. And that's the, the corn oil they're fried in. And most of the calories come from the oil as well. So. Ah, okay. Well, 
That's a weakness of mine. You were saying supersizing. Uh, they don't have supersize oh, anymore. Oh, I large fries every time. But yes, I always do a large. They, oh, fuck yeah. I love those things. After supersize me, they don't do actual supersize anymore. But, oh, yeah. They, they thought that was maybe a bad look. Yeah, but I definitely do. <laughs> I, I, I get the large every time. Oh, same. Same here. That's me. <laughs> that's my life. But to know that you're doing wrong and to continue to do it, a form of liberalism that I've got to combat. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. Matt would be very disappointed in you. He really would. In more ways oh. than one, but whatever. <laughs> I mean, same. Yeah. Poe, but he's nerfed. <laughs> that's all I have for this part one. Do we have any closing thoughts? I feel like we kind of hit the hammer several times of everything's corn and... <laughs> capitalism is bad <laughs> if you skipped the very end of this episode just to get the spoiler that's probably what it would be well i would like to posit okay what would we do how would we change things mm. in communism and socialism which name of our podcast we should probably bring it up yeah 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 <laughs> a little bit I of communism guess. here what sorts what aspects of this would we change what aspects of this would we keep that sort of thing that's a great question. I think part two is going to answer some of it, but not completely. But for now, based on this kind of stuff, I would say I think we need to focus more on like a holistic food system that takes into account the environment, that takes into account biodiversity, that takes into account health. Like it, it just it needs like fucking tear it all down. <laughs> it's really bad. I fe- I definitely felt like that for parts of it, for sure. Like just hearing the grotesquities we're inflicting on animals and everything. Yeah, that is, you know, abominable. Got it. We got to, you know, eradicate that. Day one. Get rid of that. Just, we we got to, you know, put our bodies to the fences and take that out. Like, mm-hmm. no. Okay. But, you know, but beyond that, uh, I, I, I do agree with the biodiversity angle right like this monoculture is not going to be good right it's not good for the ecosystem for a for a dying planet that we're strangling you can't have that yeah i mean it ruins your soil like just fucking decimates it and and farmers just will go broke not only trying to keep up with more technology but also just because there's there's worse and worse soil each year yeah and beyond that i mean i do think you want to produce not in a in not in hyperabundance, not in, in kind of what we're doing in a way. Although you do have to think globally, you know, you do have to say, well, we, we do want to produce abundantly to where either everyone can consume, you know, close to an American level or Americans get knocked down and, and everyone kind of consumes, you know, you want, you want to level that out and make sure that everyone has enough for sure, like you do want to be, I don't know, producing enough. That's a big thing too. Yeah, because I mean, we didn't talk about this, but like we have a huge food waste problem in America as well. So like, yeah, it, this is not efficient in that sense either. It's not. It's definitely not equitable in that. Yeah, sense. yeah. You want to you want to make sure to do that. One thing that comes to mind that I kind of mentioned earlier is that we could do some elements of like central planning or central coordinating or like we were saying in our discussions on the quiz and the, and the question and answer thing is like obviously bottom up feedback and, 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 and top down like coordination. Like we could build communally communistically like a national, an 
and then eventually an international, you know, food system that, like you were saying, kind of holistically takes all this into account, um, that environment, like look is looking out for the environment as well as producing enough, not for markets, but for people, you know, yeah, yeah, not, not to make sure that we all get a large Coke when we leave the drive through (laughs) or, you know, or that we're, we're burning enough, you know, gallons of corn to get to where we need to be. And fossil fuel. Yeah. Like, you know, some, a system that produces enough for people and produces like a clean environment and, you know, uh, animals that get to humanely live out their lives and stuff, you know, there have to be, like you said, more goals than just output than just sheer volume. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really the the crux of this issue is whenever you take something and reduce it to only caring about yield, like the, the detrimental effects of that are, are just devastating to way it ends up not being cheaper, you know? Yeah. Uh, to, you know, wrangle a little bit more of our brand into it. What is not super helpful is just like kind of it is sort of helpful to be like, holy shit, how many millions of this you know, chickens are killed and all this? Like that, that's kind of like eye opening and stuff or to see like the percentages of all this. And that's great. Um, but like what to do about it, what to do about it is not kind of as Pollen says, change your habits, <laughs> right? Or, or, or yeah, visit yeah. McDonald's less often or, or what have you like that's fine. That can make you feel better. And that can have a, that's not going to have a systemic, but that can have, that can make, that can have a personal effect. Yeah. Yeah. But what can really change things? What can bring about this system that we're talking about of like actually building uh, a food system for human needs and for the planet's needs more broadly is coordinated action is, I mean, depending on your stripe is revolutionary action or (laughs) reformist action, what have you, but action in a socialist direction, whether that's through uh, unions or through uh, revolutionary movements or through just, you know, social mutual mutual aid. aid. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's, there's a lot of different ways. And like we've said, a lot of times we're on board for literally whatever. (laughs) I'm down. I'm there. Yeah. Like don't be sexist. Don't be racist. And we're on board. (laughs) Yeah. Pretty low bar. (laughs) So, I mean, that's, that's what you've got to actually come at it as, because if if you're coming at it from anything less than you're going to get co-opted into a suit that looks a lot like Cargill's and a lot like, whatever the hell other company was, uh, Archer Daniels Midland. You're, you're going to look a lot like those guys pretty quick. Cause they're going to lobby you in right into their circle and you're going to be, you know, printing your like nonprofit, you know, NGO <laughs> ads that say, here's, you know, this is what the negative effects of consuming pork are, but you're still going to be playing their game. Yes. Yes. And I, I think, I mean, part two kind of gets into this as well, how the organic industry pretty much did that. It tried to be the change and then got co-opted. And like, it really points to like the real villain isn't just corn itself or isn't just, you know, one element of, you know, pesticides or fertilizers. Like the real villain is capitalism because it will always find a way to convert your your system into a, an exploitative one yeah and that's another big thing too is we're not trying to say that you know however you know the six 
there's more than six, but the few small corn farmers that are out there or whatever are necessarily even directly the problem or even the agribusinesses themselves. They're part of a system and the people that run them are part of a system. That system is the thing. We've said it before that like capitalism takes genuinely good people and corrupts them, defiles them, channels it into their you know, and into its evil purpose, its machines, its algorithms that like generate this dark future for us, that that's what we've got to fight is the capitalist system overall. And individuals, yeah, there is something to be said with, for like, you know, how the red terror kind of does kind of, you know, make them shake in their boots. Sure. But that's not, I don't know, concretely, that's not as much what we're going for as going after the system. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's a system that can, try to persuade you in many ways like if you think about you know the 70s and the reaction to to all that was oh let's lower food prices and like look how much food we have now isn't that nice everyone can afford meat and it's like that's nice but at what cost yeah same thing with um the supersizing thing it's like oh like look we're passing on these savings it's like you're not actually (laughs) (laughs) you know yeah like it's it's very much a Oh, isn't it nice, you know, that we're we're doing these things, we're supporting farmers, and it's like, no, you're actually supporting like these big companies. So like you have to peel back the immediate benefit of of yield and profit to and efficiency to see the actual story. Yeah, that's it's so much dressed up in, hey, this is good for you. This is beneficial to a lot of times we just get told in America, this is beneficial to the economy, which you're supposed yes. to pretend is you, <laughs> right? But it's that's me. That's your boss at, at best. <laughs> and that's really actually like your boss's boss. <laughs> to me, a lot of this reminded me of Kropotkin stuff. Like you mentioned him earlier. Mm-hmm. Of, I think this does call for a lot of localization, honestly, because I, I think if you look at even just the fossil fuel problem, like we mm. can't just mm-hmm. be carting around fucking asparagus from South America all the time, guys. Like, I think we got to stop that. We have to be. That's <laughs> yeah, that's a big thing. That's not a personal choice. I'm not telling you to, to no, be no. more seasonal in how you buy things. But as a society, overall, we have to. We, that's something we have to reintroduce, right? When we do communism is we have to be more seasonal in like our produce and shit, right? Yeah. And I, I think, too. In terms of meat eating, I think we have to take a big look at that and say, guys, I think we're going to have to cut back. Like, it's just environmentally, like, not going to fly anymore. Yeah, for sure. And, like, that's tricky, too. Like, I definitely want to be respectful of, like, cultures and traditions and stuff. Um, But, I mean, I think it's just something we're going to have to contend with. Like, this, if anything, I I wanted to do this episode just to, to say that food production is often a really difficult thing for for socialist projects and this is definitely how to not do it (laughs) i don't have the answers for how to do it quite yet but here are the pitfalls that we should be avoiding yeah and i think that part one we're really more focused on the downsides you know we we've kind of brought up like how what are some alternatives to how we do it and everything? It's it's a little bit of a teaser for our part two, uh, <laughs> because that's when we get the whole picture of how it, you know, how the how the whole network really functions, and we can really get into okay, all of the parts, you know. How do we address you know eating animals? Is it ethical? How do we address like what's organic about like that kind of stuff? That's what we'll be talking about. Yeah, yeah. All right, dude, that was a uh, great research. Yay! Thanks. 
Thank, thank Michael Pollan. He did all the work. <laughs> thank you, Michael Pollan. <laughs> Friend of the show, Michael Pollan. Oh, I would love to meet him. I bet he's got a great Lake Crusade collection. Oh, my God. <laughs> Versus my chump ass, one not Lake Crusade enameled cookware. <laughs> you know what? It's fine. It's fine. I just, I'm a big kitchen snob. And I accept that about myself. It's a lodge. It's great. Listeners. Lodges are great. Chime in and tell me if you if you think that I am a peasant. That's fine. <laughs> I mean, they'll probably chime in and tell me I'm too bourgeois, which is extremely true. <laughs> uh, maybe. Well, I'm smelling something downstairs. Maybe it's corn. I don't know. It probably has corn it's, in it. It's 36% corn. <laughs> No, it's Kyle cooking. He probably isn't. I'm, I'm sure there's more corn in there than I would imagine. Break out but... that C4 spectrometer thing. <laughs> yeah, I'll go to the lab real quick <laughs> and run it through. Dude, if it's a, you know those calom- calor- calorometers? Oh, what is that? Is it measure calories, I guess? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what they do is they, I think they just set the food on fire or something. Yeah, I remember mm-hmm. doing that, like, not with that, but I remember doing that in school just to see, like, yeah, food's energy. And yeah. I'm like, well, you can burn a lot of things. Does that mean everything's energy? <laughs> you just set it on fire. <laughs> <laughs> How many calories does this table have? <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's another uh, D&D character concept is the nutritionist fire mage. <laughs> Pyromaniac, pyromaniac chef. My enemy had 3,000 calories. <laughs> all right so tune in for part two we'll talk local food organic beyond organic all kinds of shit beyond organic sounds like uh a meat alternative like beyond meat there is yeah beyond meat yeah so beyond actually pretty good (laughs) (laughs) all right cool talk to you then all right see ya bye bye Hey there, comrades. Just jumping in to remind you of all of our social media. We are on Twitter at Teach Communism, Instagram at Teach Me Communism. You can shoot us an email. That's teachmecommunism at gmail.com. Any of those places are good to send us an episode suggestion or a question, anything you think would be useful feedback for us or just your admiration. If you want to admire us in a public manner, and you should, you can go to Apple Podcasts to give us a review. It is the best way to help people find the show. Love when people write and review us. Please do both. We are also on YouTube if that's how you prefer to listen to podcasts. Or if you know someone that's the only way they'll listen to podcasts, send them to our page. And we have a Patreon. For five bucks a month, you get access to our notes for each week's episode, including the backlog of notes, which is a very handy resource for up-and-coming commies. And at the end of the year, all of the funds from Patreon will be given to local mutual aid in the DFW area. So, ain't going to line our pockets. Finally, we have merch. Check us out at Tee Public. You can find shirts and I believe also stickers and magnets and all kinds of fun stuff with catchphrases from the show or episode art, stuff like that. The link to that store is in the show notes, so check that out. Okay, that's all the internet. Join us next time for another episode of Teach Me Communism, where the class struggle is always in session. Bye, y'all.